Hey everyone, this is Tom. Welcome to episode 33 of The Great Divide. This is part two of our in-depth discussion with Mark Brzecki. And I think the theme of these shows has basically been that uh, me and Svine just shut up and let Mark talk. So we're going to continue that trend by picking up exactly where we left off the last time. And we're going to start right now with Mark talking about some of the reasons why big country was not as big as it probably should have been. So there's a lot he's going to talk about. Enjoy. It wasn't free want of trying. There was always stuff privately within the band that would perhaps thwart us, you know, be it the fact that, uh, you know, in the early days when there was, we were away from home a lot. And, you know, I, I, everyone else in the band was married except me. And different people had different different tugs to be at home. You know, Tony seemed to deal with being at home a lot and and so did Bruce but being away from home a lot easier than Stuart Stuart found it very very difficult and when there was some key things that could have changed the fortunes of big country uh, we turned them down because of the fact that Stuart did not want to be away from home at those at that time mm. you know there were, I think there was an Elton John world tour to do that was uh, uh, there was a big no-no yeah, that's really interesting to hear you talk about that, um, especially how, not that it's a surprise, but how close you were with Stuart and had those uh, discussions with him. It's really obvious that you were close to him. So, oh, so in light close. of that, yeah, yeah, but uh, mm. that, that, that really comes through. So I'm just wondering, as you, uh, if you look a bit ahead towards the driving to Damascus era, did you mm-hmm. uh, still have that closeness after he moved to America? Was he clear that he was not in a happy place? Um, not at first. I, I mean, it, it was it was odd the fact that big country was suddenly like you know it was bad enough when it was two guys from London and two guys from from Edinburgh or you know Dunfermline, which is close. You know, we were four hundred miles away, but all of a sudden, when you were three and a half thousand miles away between one band member, it, it suddenly became a little bit more awkward. The mm. fact that, um, you know, in any relationship, you, the, the more you see them, you know, you, you keep things nurtured. All of a sudden, we didn't see Stuart physically. We didn't hear from him. You know, we, he, he was doing his own thing. He had the thing going with Marcus, which I was involved in when he toured, as you know, over here. But right. he was very much involved in, in, a, in a new direction in his head, spiritually in a new direction. And um, he was motivated by being out there. And, and obviously, his relationship had changed. He'd got married to an American girl. His whole life had changed, and the whole dynamic from Stuart was very, very different. Again, it was the same old Stuart, and it was the same chemistry. That chemistry was was, was incredibly strong in the band, very instinctive, and and we knew we didn't. When things were great, it, it, they they were great when we didn't have to try too hard, and we didn't ever really try too hard. You know, things, as some of our magnificent moments came from very simple things, and being able just to be in the moment and playing well with each other and being instinctive with each other all that kind of harmony was always there with the four of us you know Mm. and it was still there with diving to damascus the only thing that was was different was the fact that physically he lived a long way away so all of a sudden instead of me and tony getting on the train and going up to scotland you know which was a long way when you were young we were getting on a plane me tony and bruce now flying to nashville (laughs) which i loved because i love america um and of course uh uh, I, I could see there was a, a musical influence difference that was happening with Stuart. You know, not only um, vocally, his his voice had changed a little bit after Peace in Our Time from the American-based record that we did with Pete the Wolf. But, you know, he was getting back to more 
puristic traditional kind of country style of writing songs it definitely had a big country nashville influence in there the marcus Hummel influences it was there as well i embraced it because i i have a bigger spectrum of music that i've been especially doing session work that i was able to tap into and put a different hat on and enjoy that that side of the challenge bruce struggled a little bit with it where you know although it, it wouldn't show because bruce would always be bruce ultimately bruce comes with such a unique one-off sound um I, I, I know Bruce wasn't happy with the country direction so much, but, but Tony was the one that really struggled with it. He did, does not like that genre of music. And he, he didn't like the, the, the Nashville scene, to be honest with you. And um, <clears throat> I know he struggled with that. But obviously coming to record it, um, we did demos out there and we recorded in, 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 in the UK. Um, so that, that, that made it a lot easier, to be honest, because we were, we were back kind of where we always were. You know, we were always in, we always met halfway. We are always in it, you know, as, as much as we lived at other ends of the country in the UK, we were always somewhere neutral in the UK. And we felt like anywhere in the UK together was home, particularly in the studio. <clears throat> and those songs, I thought that was a really good album, Driving to Damascus. I mean, it, it, it definitely was, it, it, looking back, it definitely is a portrait of where the band were at that point, given the, you know, the personal side of the band. And it was a good comeback album to me in a way, because, you know, it, it, it country kind of lost its way. I, I, only because, again, it, it, it's all the sum of the parts that makes it big country. And this is a delicate thing. It's a fragile band. And, you know, Stuart had now gone to America. Um, and we were still the same band, but, we, we, we were now sounding different, but at the same time, there was a slightly new direction with Stuart, and that was prevalent in that driving to Damascus. I really like the production of the album. I like I like the songs. Yeah. It, it moves away a little bit away from the first three albums with Big Country, but it, it's a snapshot of where we were, given, in, given the fact that, you know, the bands are a product of being human beings and, and, and a product of being what's happening in their lives, particularly from Stuart, which is related in the lyrics. And his vocal style. So, yeah, it, it was a, good, a really good album for me. I really enjoyed playing on that album. I think it still stands up as a really good album. <clears throat> but it does it does signal the departure from where we were when we started off in the 80s for me. And when we had that, the um, the, the more puristic big country that, that, you know, the first three albums, I would say. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. But uh, nevertheless, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that's as good as it would get for that time, if you know what I mean, because that that's the sum of the parts of where the band were at at that time. You know, we, we're very much a, you take a photograph uh, of the band and, you, you know, you have different phases and different ages. And musically, we're like that. You take a snapshot of the band and, you know, we're slightly different then. But then we may change again, you know. Yeah. And they're all very interesting periods, yeah. too, which is which is fascinating from a fan standpoint. Mm. But uh, just curious, um, it seemed to me from someone from the outside, from a fan perspective, the things that I've read, it, it seemed that Stuart Stewart's mindset in and around '99, after driving to Damascus, was was very similar to what you described in '89, where he almost felt like it was time to end the band. And we've read some <coughs> things where he told you guys that maybe Mike Peters should join. Even then, he had said that. We Mike was on a tour with us, supporting us, and yeah, you know, it, it, I think I think to be honest, it. It, unless it was something Stuart wasn't telling us whether he wasn't fulfilled musically. He, I think he was very fulfilled musically with Big Country, even to the to the last. I think it was the fact that 
what he would tell me was it was it was the business side of things that was really eating him the fact that uh you know the record company didn't understand i mean you know that, that fragile the, thing fiasco as well where the single was yeah it, you know the, the, the folds the in the singles in the, in the record sleeve uh, and all that stuff you know yeah it, it got very tedious as to why things weren't happening and and you know from from peace in our time which we you know we suddenly we, we thought we would perhaps that would be I mean, when we had the choice of produce, I love Peter Wall's production, by the way. I think it's it's uniquely him, and he's a fabulous musician in that genre. Mm. But in hindsight, I remember when we were discussing things, I remember Stuart was really up for Peter Wolf doing it, and he wanted to embrace the American side because he saw it as a transition from being stuck in one place and not moving forward, as in we always do Britain and we do a limited amount there and a bit in Europe. But he wanted to break America, like I feel we should still do. Uh, I always had that ambition with Stuart to break America. And it, it kind of took Stuart to move there by his family circumstances, his own personal life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took, because he had a house in Florida as well, you know, before that. That's right. He was embracing right. America. And, and when, then, when there was like the big American producer at that time to go out and record in America, Stuart and probably myself really wanted that more so than Bruce and Tony. And I think... Stuart probably felt that was the key to breaking out and, you know, moving forward where he felt musically, he was not musically restricted by the fact that he didn't feel he was restricted what he could do. But the business side of things, it would take it would take America to break the band, which was the next big step to conquer. You know, he felt he was treading the same boards all the time and not getting anywhere. And things are actually getting worse back home, you know, less smaller gigs, less records sold things that would depress you as a, as a guy with great ambition you know so he felt yeah. america was the was the thing that could change it all so he went with the kind of american thing the even sang more in american twang on on that as you know although he was developing his voice in his own way and well, the that's, that's very the first american, thing i picked up on as a fan hearing peace in our time was that i didn't even recognize it as mm. being you guys when i first heard no. king of emotion i, I didn't recognize it until someone said that was big country, and I thought that was big. See, country. I didn't like that song. I didn't. I didn't like playing it. I didn't ever like that song. Wow. And I know. I know that there was a big influence in the band at that time as well. And it, it, for me, uh, King of Emotion was was our was our tribute to the Rolling Stones. we'd been touring with them we'd done a couple of uh, support tours with them uh, we did the Bridges of Babylon and, and um, the Voodoo Lounge and they had a huge influence on Bruce I know that because Keith Richards is a huge guitar hero of Bruce's um, and it influenced Stuart as well being on such a big stage with such a big band and you know having suddenly been in a place where we all felt we belonged on a big stage you know and we had that being a support right. and you know 
it's kind of that was the, the Stones was resonating around big country hugely at that time, and and I think King of Emotion, kind of I, you know, it wasn't for me on that song to be honest. It was it, it it was a bit of a plod for me, and it didn't sound like big country, and I didn't I didn't like the Stones' influence on big country. I like the Stones as a band and embracing them as a band because I think they're an incredible band and to be around and I love Charlie Watts is playing and I love all the band members but the Stones influence in Big Country I, I, I thought we were so uniquely our own that we were slightly lost our way in, in, in simplifying the songs and the rhythm you know and uh, having that kind of uh, that kind of Stonesy uh, trot that they have in, in, in musically which kind of there wasn't it in Sing of Emotion yeah, yeah. very honky talk woman like exactly and, and Stuart used to sing that sound check stuff and I, I as much as I love the song I didn't see it as part of Big Country personally but um, I didn't like that song I've got to be honest with you but I love the Stones but I didn't like I didn't like the um, Stuart thing. bringing that into the band to be honest because it, it, it but having said that you know again it is what it is you know you're influenced by what's around you and the Stones are a fabulous band and you're surrounded by that music at that time and you're excited by being involved with them and I was as well, you know. <clears throat> well, well, let me um, let me uh, take you on a little bit of a tangent here and I apologize. Are you doing okay with time? I haven't even looked. Okay, good. That, yes, well, that's a, that's a good sign. That's a good sign. Yeah. <laughs> well, as I, as I always say, whenever we're talking with Bruce or anyone, if at any moment you you have to go, just let us know. We're we're fine. fine. But you know, we're the kind of we're the kind of guys who will keep you on here all day no. if you don't tell us. So we'll, we'll keep going. As so long as I don't waffle too much, because as you know, I can waffle for for England. So oh, what what, what you're what you're giving us is absolutely fantastic. People are going to and uh, really can you enjoy. imagine? This is the guy who said he was the quiet one. Well, and <laughs> he got to prod me, and I I start talking. Oh, that's good. Well, but we wanted to talk to you a little bit um, about Steel Town since that reissue is coming out here soon. I think it's coming oh. out in April, and I I know that from a commercial perspective. People were maybe business-wise, people were disappointed maybe with how that album performed overall. But from a fan's perspective, it's it's widely considered, you know, your Mona Lisa, your masterpiece. <laughs> and it's it was funny with for Swine and I speaking with Bruce to learn that so much of it was really constructed sort of on the fly in the studio. And um, I'm I'm just curious what your memories are of the recording of that album and and what it was like to. Working, working under that pressure of the sophomore album, that kind of thing, and how you feel about how that came out. I know a lot. Of, I know both of you, you and Bruce, wish that you could have remixed it. But um, there's, there's a lot of overdubs on that album. I think it's a fabulous album, by the way. I think it was. Again, it, it's hard to, to look at myself because I'm too close to seeing it. But it, as years pass and I see them as a different lifetime now, as a such a long time ago, I can kind of see more in perspective as to what was going on if you you know you ask me now more so than at the time if you'd asked me this in 1985 or 84 i'd say i don't know we're just doing it (laughs) right it's just the next thing that we do i've got no rhyme or reason as to say why it came out but i can kind of tell you more now i think that album was probably a tough album because we were a tough band at that time you know we'd done the groundwork we had the crossing out we had huge success out of nowhere from being nothing to a huge band and we were working hard you know, we were we were touring hard. We were over in the states doing stuff, and we were we were in the non-stop. I mean, it, we really were totally non-stop. And I think because of that, 
you know, you have that second, the, the, the awkward second album to record. We talked about it. We talked about it on the tour bus, we, you know, but without realizing we were actually crafting songs. There were ideas flying all over the place. Mm. Whilst we were on tour with The Crossing, there was so many, dare I say, think tank stuff. Um, we didn't call it that then, but there was of ideas that were around uh, demo wise, sound check wise, loads of loads of ideas kicking around. Not to say that we had full-blown songs, but there were great ideas and great sounds and echo things and new 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 uh, equipment that they were buying. Uh, you know, with, with their unique guitar sounds, they were always buying different pedals and effects and coming out with new things. Often, often the sound would influence a big country song more than even anything else. You know, you just get a sound going and it would generate an idea. So that that was really really strong. Um, that that was really really strong. Uh, while we were the band was a tough band on on the road and musically without realizing it, some of those songs were like an overflow from the crossing as well you know musically we were still coming out from the crossing um and going into the studio with steve lillywhite again to keep that to keep the theme of the the, the tonal sound in the production was very important for me uh, but this time around we went to stockholm and we went to abba studios and it was a fabulous place to be, not only for the fact that, you know, you had ABBA that had recorded, it was their own studio, so you had that spirit there, a bit like going to Abbey Road with the Beatles, you know. You, you had the studio there, but uh, the only the only thing that was really odd about it for me was the, um, the it, we were recording on 3M Digital. It was, it was a new form of recording at that time, mm-hmm. where you were still recording on tape, but it was now digital tape. And I know that when I first started to play my drums, and I can hear everything in my drums, I'm, I, mean, I, I can tell a studio by my drum sound. I think, as a musician, if you play keyboards, you get a drum, you get a sound anywhere because it's 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 in the keyboards. You plug it in, and it's in its stereo, it's direct. Guitars, you can you can change guitar sounds, but drums are like the acid test of the of the the room. Mm. You can hear where you. Re- I can hear anyone in, on any record. I can normally tell what kind of room they're in. The drums give it all away. And if you're in a room that hasn't got good microphones or you're at the mercy of the room with the drum kit, you really are at the mercy of the producer in the room. And the drums are really, really, really hit and miss. And I created such a great sound with Steve on the crossing. I wanted to keep that thread going with my big drum sound. Mm. And we were trying to get that in Polar, but it was slightly different because it was recorded digitally. And I remember hearing the drums back thinking, oh my God, it sounds so hard. It sounds really hard and harsh. I wasn't sure if I liked it, but mm. everything else that got played, don't get me wrong, the, the, the guys love playing overdubs where they get an idea, then you play on top of it and you, you, you know the song can change direction. Right. So <clears throat> there was more experiment with overdubs on that album perhaps than, um, than on the first album being complete songs. We were kind of writing uh, on the road uh, and almost making things up in the studio. Mm. So, and the, the sound of it, not only were we a tough band, but the sound of the band was tough it was tough coincidentally because of the fact that the room was different and we were recording on digital and it was a hard sound. I remember thinking, Oh my God, it's going to hurt people's ears when they hear it back. <laughs> um, because they, we had problems with that recording. I remember that we were getting digital glitches, you know, on the tracks at random and you, you know, we didn't have the facility to see them on computer screen. You had to actually sift through each drum track and each guitar track and see where these little glitches and clicks wow. and spikes were coming from. That's exactly um, what Bruce told us too. Yeah, yeah. And I know there was problems on that, on that record recording for that, but I do remember as a drummer thinking 
the drums sound great, but they're so hard sounding. I wish they were, they had a bit more warmth to them, like they did in the Crossing. But you, we couldn't do anything about that. It was it was just the gear that we were recording on makes my drums sound the way they do. Yeah. Uh, and the guitars had that as well. They were very piercing. But actually, it gave the it gave the album a, a brilliant sound. It really, you know? it sounds like nothing else I've ever heard exactly. before or since. It it's given it a unique like Big Country is a unique band that that gave us a unique sound. And I love the album for that reason. And, you know, as much as The Crossing is seen as, as one of our best albums, a lot of people say it's still it's the best album. I see them as I see them as like one album to me, to be honest with you, because, uh, you know, things were moving so fast at the time. We didn't have time to think about anything, particularly the success of The Crossing. And one album for me bled into the other. It, to me, that's the, the Crossing part two, but in a different studio for me. Oh, wow. Um, but um, again, I, I, I had a lot of freedom on that album because Steve was at the helm as well. Um, I remember playing Tall Ships Go and it, it, it came from that really uh, arpeggio echo from Bruce or Stewart. I'm not sure who it starts it. That yeah, which he played with a coin, apparently, uh, yeah. tapping yeah. the guitar string. That's right. And we were really experimental at the time. I was using all kinds of things. In the studio, um, I was spinning cymbals on the floor to create like a helicopter effect of some noises in the background and some tracks. And uh, I remember Steve Lillywhite said to me, um, "You might as well take the take the fire extinguisher in, Mike. You've been tapping along to it in the in the control room." <laughs> so I took the fire extinguisher in there. <laughs> and I started really? Oh it. wow! And he said, "That sounds great. Why don't we record that onto one of the songs?" <laughs> and then I said, well, "Hang on a minute." There was one of these 1970s ashtrays that was about the same height as my snare drum. And it was oh a bit, like a little square tower. And it had a little aluminium top that, that if I hit it, it would rattle on the top of the, the, the box that it was standing on. So I said, actually, Steve, forget the, forget the uh, fire extinguisher, which I think I use as an overdub on the song as part of a <laughs> percussion. I said, I'm going to incorporate the ashtray within my octobarn pattern. <laughs> So I, I, Steve was like, great, let's get a mic on there. In fact, let's put the microphone in the ashtray. You know? so we, we, we took my side snare away and I, I, I just bought the ashtray that was actually sitting, you know, next to me. At those days, people smoked in the studio, would you believe it or not? And I moved the ashtray to where the, the second snare was. I said, Steve, right, let me try and play this within the pattern, see, see what it sounds like. And, and Steve said, it sounds great. Come and have a listen. So I put a rough takedown of, of tall ships go at the front and the, the little side pattern is like that, that bit is the ashtray And he liked the hardness of it as well because of, you know Steel Town and um, the metallic sound of it seemed to seem to be uh, to go with 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 the theme of the album you know in hindsight. 
so we were very experimental with with that record and and there's a few ups and downs on that record as well i know at some point me and bruce ended up we, me and bruce ended up mixing it because Stuart went home and so did tony go home <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly they had to go home for for reasons you know um the, the usual reasons of um uh <laughs> things weren't well you had to go and sort things out so um me and bruce were left with steve lillywhite to uh try and mix that record wow um yeah but we had a great time though because I, I shared a little apartment with Stuart and tony shared one with bruce and we had our own bicycles we would we would cycle up to the studio um on our little uh swedish or dutch bike and i'm not sure what it was <laughs> but uh, you know you I, going back to you saying i was quite close to Stuart. i spent a lot of time with Stuart. i used to share rooms and travel with him and you know it was great it was really great being um you know it was like a brother to me like the rest of the band members were where tony was uh, and still is close to me because of my early days you know uh, i was able to embrace bruce and Stuart in that way as well what was Stuart's? what was Stuart's mindset at the time when when you guys were really breaking around that period and you were spending that time with him i mean listening to interviews he seemed so uh it just such a different type of person from the typical "Quote unquote star mentality," and I know that that's he something was he was a very trying to get man. He was a very humble man, and, and unlike unlike a lot of rock bands, I I mean we we were quite normal people, you know. And I say that, oh God knows if we're normal. I don't know what normal is, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but being normal guys, you know, we were thrilled when things were happening because um, you know we we couldn't believe things were happening. I remember Stuart being. Uh, couldn't believe that when when we're having songs in the charts and you know doing this those seminal tv shows like top of the pops and then getting asked to all these amazing things each and every one of those was really appreciated by the band where we couldn't actually believe it was happening we were a humble band probably wrong wrong to we should have had perhaps more more like you know we we're the best and we're going to conquer the world we still believe that deep down in ourselves that we are great you know and that we're but but, but the humbleness of the band, particularly in Stuart, you know, he would always be blown away when anything that, that rightly should have been happening in the band was happening. He would really appreciate it. That, that uh, perhaps a lot of people would see it as the norm, you know, that it would be expected, if, you know, but Stuart and the band appreciated everything that happened. And um, we were always blown away when big things were happening in the band. We we, st- we would stand back and go, oh, my God, I can't believe there's that many people out there that want to see us, you know, stuff like that. You would think, you know, if you would say, come on, guys, what do you expect? You know, if I could remove myself from being in the band, I would be saying that. But when <laughs> you're in the band, we were very humble, you know. Um, it's always been a band like that. Whether that was a good thing to be or not, I don't know. But Stuart, Stuart particularly, if you're talking about Stuart, was a very, very humble and sometimes a very shy man on stage mm. as well you know i know he found it sometimes hard to talk to the audience i know that you know he didn't he didn't have the uh the the, the generic rock and roll thing that you would have that most rock bands would be able to say you know you're feeling all right you know right I mean, well, used to, yeah in fact we used to say that let me hear you say yeah he almost used to send that that rock and roll um you know stereotypical banter he used to send it up has anyone here ever been madly or blindly in love there's the guy 
And I knew it was you because as soon as I came on stage, I could see the pain in your eyes. So I know that you had truly been there. Oh my God. I've got her tattooed right on my ass. Alongside my slippery when wet tattoo. No step aft. Back with you, friend, because I've been through that pain too. Only this afternoon, in fact. So that's kind of where he came from. He was slightly embarrassed to be, <laughs> to be up on stage. Uh, until the music would play and then, you know, you get in the zone and, and it, the music would cover for everything, you know. I say his power, the power still came through even without that. Once you play, you know, you, 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 you play the songs and, and Stuart, Stuart and every band member's in the zone and, and you're delivering 100% and you're fully confident. You stop the music and you've got that person exposed again. And I think Stuart felt that on stage, that he was exposed when the music stopped. So in between songs, sometimes he was seem to be a little bit awkward at times or um you know unrock and roll as such but uh right it gave him his uniqueness that people loved you know Fantastic. Uh, because he still managed to draw people to him without those cliches and exactly by, yeah, yeah by being, just being himself and i think that's what people liked about him it, yeah you know we we got a lot of comparisons to you too but you know we, Stuart wasn't climbing pa columns or waving white flags around yeah, he he did like doing that. I must admit, he did like going out. He was one for the people. I, I must say that he generally meant everything he said. He, he was a man of his word, Stuart. And um, if he would go out to the audience, it's because it felt it was important that he met them. You know, he mm -hmm. felt that they were uh, such an important part of why he was in a band. Was it was the audience and him? It wasn't about just look at me. I'm great on stage, and I don't need to know anything about you. He very much saw it as a duality. That he wouldn't be up there without them, and that was important to him. To that they, that, you know, that the fact they were there, they were feeding the music, and and they understood what he was saying, and he he thrived on that. He loved that, and he would show that appreciation by wanting to meet and uh, be a, a humble man to these people when you met him. You know. Wait a minute. I hope everyone can understand what I'm saying. Yeah. That's good because my mother never could. Yeah, I was just thinking we uh, we spoke about Steel Town. So uh, just looking ahead to the sea year, that's a really interesting time uh, in the band. In terms of Steel Town didn't have any hit singles. It was like a hit album, but it didn't have the, the singles that Crossing did. So uh, there was a larger sort of pressure from the record company to get hits. Isn't that true? Yeah, I think Big Country are a very misunderstood band. Um, I think, you know, Big Country have influenced, uh, been a great band. To, to, if you're a young band, there's still bands around that now tap into Big Country and see them as an influence. But right. at the time we were, when we were kind of riding high after the crossing, other than perhaps in a Big Country, we weren't the stereotypical kind of band that the record industry needed to, to fulfill their order books with. You know, they... We were still quite an aggressive, hard-sounding, unusual-sounding band, you know. With with without, oh, I talked about it earlier. With our typical songwriting, wasn't wasn't the typical writing you would hear on the radio. And some of the songs, as much as we would understand them and feel they were instinctively right within big country, they weren't actually radio-friendly to the genre that was very much. You had to have that particular style or sound at that time. So, the record company were looking to 
bring the band more in line to kind of into what was expected to be played on the radio, you know. And in, in doing so, I think with the Seer, they got Robin Miller in because he was involved in Sade and a few other more, more kind of more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? More laid back and more, <coughs> more musical kind of arrangements and a right. softer sound. And that's when and, Dave Bates came into the picture too, Yeah, right? Dave Bates was, I'm not sure what was happening with that period. It's a very confused period from the record company because uh, Chris Briggs was very, very instrumental in knowing <clears throat> Chris, who went on to EMI. You know, he's, he's, he was a great man. He, he signed the band. He saw what the band was about. He understood what was a band was about. The industry around him um, was not exactly the same as Chris. He saw our vision and he, he, he brought that to fruition. And he was a huge part of what made Big Country. But when Chris wasn't involved and it was Dave Bates and things were moving in within the record company, you know, we inherited a guy that really didn't understand the band other than his role was to try and get singles out of the band and to make the band more, per se, commercial. And that's something that particularly Stuart and, and I think the rest of the band members, we didn't particularly like being told how to be. You know, it was you, you got what you got. And if you could work with it, then you got you got us, you know. Um, but obviously the commercial side of the band was needed to keep the band up in the public eye and to sell records and to, to showcase the band. You know, you can have an album of obscurity, but you have the hit singles on it. And I think Robin Miller was chosen really to get that side of things together. And it, again, I love the album, but is I still prefer the first two albums when it was more puristic, big country. Yeah. Uh, the drum sound again for me changed a little bit, although it's still hanging on a little bit to this, to, uh, to the crossing. Um, the songs were far more chilled out and Robin had a different different way of working you know uh, he would strip the songs back a bit more and not, not have so many overdubs he would allow a lot more room to breathe so there wasn't so much noise when you heard the whole thing back because often Big Country would have so much going on that you hear it back to back on the radio and you would know it was Big Country because the speakers would be rattling <laughs> right. there were so many things being played at the same time you would hear like I don't know you would hear I don't know, with the songs at the time, Duran Duran or something, and you would hear the production there, and then suddenly you hear Big Country, and it would be like, <laughs> the speakers just go kind of... <laughs> you know, Stuart, we used to actually say when Big Country played, it was white noise that would come out of the radio you know, <laughs> at that time. So I think there was a little bit of sifting through all those immense, complicated overdubs that we did and softening the guitar sound a little bit, having them more open, more 12-string sounding and more jangly, you know and a softer drum sound i think that was not that not that it was recorded like that it was produced like that you know and my drum sound was the same i sat my i took the same drum kit in you know but again he would make the room a bit drier uh, he would mix the drum slightly lower in the mix or not so this and that and uh, i was aware it was sounding very slightly different then but i went along with it because you you really have no choice you know you 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 just got to do you got to you've got to please everyone you know but ultimately you have to still please yourself so it was a bit of a compromise that album of 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 it, it being what it was and the record company's influence with the choice to produce well you know we spoke with robin um through you email know. uh we, we spoke with robin through email about this and um a, a while back and i don't know how familiar you are with he, apparently there was his mix, the Robin Miller mix of the album, which was much less uh, processed, from what he has told us. And yeah, then, but then 
apparently that was scrapped, and Dave Bates brought in Walter Turbot to remix yeah. it. I mean, well, were, we, again, Dave. I think we lost our way within the record company. Chris Briggs had moved on; he got promoted, and he was he was now in EMI, I think. And and Dave um, Dave Bates really didn't embrace the band like Chris did. It, it was it was he inherited us rather than he, we weren't his baby. And there's a difference there, you know. And he didn't really understand the band at all. I've got to be honest. And bringing in Walter Turbot was was like a desperate way of of saying like you know take this which i don't really understand and do something with it <laughs> and and you know walter started to add saxophones and things in the band <laughs> right, and right. keyboards which when i heard some of these mixes i, I remember being horrified thinking what the hell is all this about <laughs> you and me right. both mate i was horrified I, I think we all were but at the same time there's an element of well they must know what they're doing and obviously you know we can't have it all our own way when you have a producer they're like a referee it's a compromise and the people that are making things happen for you you have to try and at least work with them in some form or other and you know it's, it's a way of just kind of going oh well <laughs> if you think that's right well let's see how we go with it you know let's give it a chance and and i i was never happy with that period i must admit but it's easy to say that now but at the time it was happening you know you, you are in again it's a family thing you know you, you you're in this family you're in this whole the family is you with the record company as well and you have to be friends with them you have to you have to make things work you have to compromise it is a compromise um although i didn't think we compromised much in our career to be honest i think i still think that we still sounded like big country in anything that we did you know you talked about uh when we first started you know that it's me and bruce still retain the, the importance of of making it sound like big country and i believe that to be true you know big, big country has always been about the guitar sound and the drum sound as well as the lyrics and the vocals and you still have that you know as long as me and bruce have a chance to to be that and that's why i feel it important that me and bruce collaborate a lot with with the mixing and being involved in what we do to keep the to, to keep the the uh the chemistry at least you know what's there the drums are still the same drummer and the guitar to a certain extent still the same guitarist you know I remember what you told me uh, after the Sellersville show when we were speaking, and you told some other people as well, the story of how your, your drums on the journey came about. I, I wonder if, I think people would find that really interesting if you could maybe share that, because it's pretty widely thought of that your drums are, are really the star of that album. I mean, they're just amazing. It's an amazing performance. And I know you, you had mentioned that the first mixes of that album, you were really unhappy with the way that was oh, sounding. I, I, I was, I was, I was, they were awful i mean again it, it, it's it's just it's just working things through bruce was I mean, it's quite funny being in the studio because there was me and bruce pretty much directing how things were going um and rightly so and you know when drums get recorded it's a funny thing that happens i could write a book about this but when drums get recorded the reason you commit to that pass and that take is because they're sounding great at that given moment. You say, they're sounding great, let's record. You've already reached that pinnacle. And what often happens is that when the tediousness of the guitars that get done afterwards, the drums are now there, they get layered and then they get changed and then the lyrics get put and they change and the harmonies get put on and then the bass and all that stuff. They get built on that drum track. What happens is the drums get quieter and quieter and quieter as they get buried with the new ideas that's happening and what you normally get told is don't worry when we mix it 
will get them back to the way they were. Mm. And the way they were was already at his best. So you can lose focus on that. And what I felt was that that, that, that you got to, every time you play the songs, you should really maintain and remember of the sound that, that excited you in the first place, which is why you committed to tape. And what was happening with the journey was that things were getting buried to the point where I couldn't really hear the drums anymore. And when I mentioned that in the studio, they'd say, Mark, look, please stop mentioning your drums all the time they'll be right in the mix but then you get used to hearing the songs with the drums so quiet that's what just naturally happens you get used to it so you play it back and you i was coming in the room and hearing the songs back and going my drums are still very 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 quiet they've been now buried should i mention it because i keep mentioning it so i started not to mention it so now they're playing the songs back they're going listen to it this is a rough mix it sounds great and i'm thinking oh my god is this a rough mix they haven't even brought my drums back up They've got used to hearing them without hardly any drums, and I've done all this detail, and it now doesn't sound like the formula that Big Country had because the drums are always pounding. You've got that big sound, da 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 da. You've got the guitars that are embellishing it, and the you know, the soaring lead guitars and the twin guitar and the bagpipe thing. All of a sudden, that wasn't there. It was just layers of guitars, and I'm so I'm thinking, mm, how do I do? How do I negotiate my way to get my drums back up? It's sounding like I'm trying to talk about myself. So, because they were seriously buried. <clears throat> so they decided to get in. Um, okay, so, uh, Rafe McKenna, Bruce made a call to Rafe McKenna because uh, they thought if they had a third party involved, it would it would bring back, you know, he did Drive Into Damascus. He also did an album with me with Procol Harum. Um, so they, Bruce had sent Rafe, without me knowing, he'd sent Rafe some mixes and Rafe had mixed it just on spec to see if we liked it. I had no idea this was even happening. And Bruce would send me an MP3 of the mix done by Rafe, I couldn't believe I couldn't hear my drums. <laughs> Still. <laughs> yeah, so I, I would ring Bruce and say, Bruce, are you happy with the mix? He'd go, it's great, it's brilliant. <laughs> it would be, the, the guitars were awesome. It was, a, it was a guitar album. It was, I couldn't hear my drums. Every time I did a drum fill, there was a hole in the music. I couldn't hear my drums. But because everything else is sounding so wonderful on top, and people don't really have that detail in their ear like I do because I play the drums, you know. Every time I heard a drum fill where I would do my drum fill, I, I didn't hear the fill. I heard a hole in the music that I didn't hear my hi-hats when the lead solos came in. And so I thought, what can I do about this? So I spoke to Rafe about this and he said, well, it's not, you know, he actually said to me, it's not all about you, Mark, because he thought I was just trying to get my drums turned up loud. Which, which, which isn't why, why I was worried. I'm not bothered whether it's all about me. I just wanted to get what I felt I brought to the table in the music because the reason I play those bits is because they're part of the song. I'm a song drummer. And all of a sudden, I wasn't hearing this. And whether it's because today's production, it, it, the drums never shine in today's production, I must admit. And I think that's probably to do with why, you know, I think... Um, Rafe is a great mixer and he's a great producer but he's probably really into a more current way that he records things and that doesn't really apply to Big Country in my head it didn't really resonate with me that you know if you put whatever the modern mix is today the drums I don't really hear there's no character in the drums I can't tell who's playing them they all sound the same they're either a drum machine that's too loud and I can hear them or if they're real drums they're too quiet so I wasn't really sure of, of of what I was hearing. I, I, whether it was the MP3s, 
And I thought it was best that if me and Bruce went into the studio, I, I asked, um, uh, what's the name? We produced the record. Sorry. My oh, brain. Andrea. Andrea. And I asked Andrea. I said, look, the, the rough mixes that you sent me are fabulous, right? And, and now the mixes from Rafe, I can't hear things, but your rough mixes, not the mixes you've done as a band, but your rough mixes, where you're not thinking about it, you're frying things up quickly, instinctively to get a mix, but they're not to keep. They're the best, best mixes for me because you do things fast. If you think too hard about it and you overanalyze it and you wonder if everything's just a bit too loud and should that come down a little bit, they don't make for good mixes. I think you mix really quickly. You know if something's right or not and you do it quickly. It's a bit like trying to adjust the colour of your television. Not that you need to do that nowadays, but if I can take that as an analogy, if you bring the colour up, you, if you do it too, too slowly, you, you you don't know where you are. You have to do it quickly to go. Oh, there's a sweet spot. I know where I am. Yeah. <clears throat> With music, it's the same. And and I felt that perhaps Rafe was perhaps taking, looking at it in too much detail. And to be honest, the result, I'm I'm instant. You give me the first two seconds of the song, I know what the mix is. I can hear it in the drums. I've got with the drums they show top end, mid, and low end. They cover all frequencies, and immediately I know if something's missing, <coughs> and, it, and it doesn't represent my style. So I said to Bruce, "Look, I'd rather Andrew mix the album with us there." So we went down to the studio, me and Bruce with the band, and although I had a little bit of a pulling and um, you know uh, jousting with Bruce over things, Bruce would say. I go bring the bring the high up up two dB. Bruce would go no, bring it down one dB. Let's compromise. <laughs> and then when Bruce was out of the room, I say bring up the other one dB again. <laughs> so, Sounds like you're having an auction. Uh, who's got Quarter, quarter, half and half, and sold your way, 65. We had a little bit of a joust, me and Bruce, because he got used to the fact that he was so pleased with the Wraith mix, um, because the, the the guitars were so dominant. And, and, and if I was a guitarist, I'd be over the moon as well. <laughs> but to be honest with you, I didn't think they represented the, uh, the, the actual flavor of the band where you st I still wanted to hear the drums pounding along and the guitars screaming along. Yeah. And I, it, it took me to be there to allow that to happen, to be honest with you. Um, so when Bruce, so when Bruce and yourself start doing that kind of auctioning, do the other know well enough to stay out of the way? Yeah. I mean, Derek was, we, we you know, to be honest, Big Country's always half helped mix the albums. You know, back in the day, to be honest, we were on, sometimes we were on each fader, you know, back with Steve Lillywhite, Iraq, we would have a fader to control because Steve couldn't please all of us. You know, he'd say, right, look, if you know your parts, push it up where you think, but don't go past this line I've drawn, you know, on the desk. <clears throat> so we often mixed with Bruce pushing up his guitar where he knew those parts would need to come up and Stuart would do the same and I would do that as well with my drums. So we, and Tony with the bass, we were often on a live mix. We were very much in, involved in some of those mixes in the early days. And, and um, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't think Rafe had done a bad job. I, I just don't think he understood where I was coming from, from the tonal side I was trying to bring to the drums. I mean, I, I tuned my drums in a certain way on that album. I dropped some of my bottom heads off to get a particular front end punch that you get with the single heads that now wasn't there in the Rafe mix. You know, I, I wanted, you know, I wanted to make 
what I, the reasons for why I did things. I wanted to bring that back into the mix that was taken away. And, uh, you know, I think it sounds very much like a big country album because I wasn't looking for credit on the drums as such. I wanted the drums to get the credit they deserved within being part of the music. Whatever and, you did worked so beautifully yeah. because uh, that really, uh, honestly, was the, the main immediate reaction of people was, have you heard the drums on this album? They're unbelievable. Yes. I'd see, I, I, th th musically, I was really charged to do a great album on that album. I was, we hadn't played together for a long time, and uh, I was very excited going into the studio, and I knew I could really dig in with some of those new songs, and, you know, I was on fire on some of those tracks. Yeah, you were. And, again, when, they, when, I, when I was delivering them being on fire and then hearing them back after I played them, they, it was still, the fire was still there, as I was saying. Fire, fire, fire! The fire was being put out, <laughs> everything being buried on the top, and then losing track of where the drum balance was. You know, within the drum kit, you know, having having the hi hats hardly hardly there when they were when they were overlaying, you know, and doing the vocals. You know, there was hardly any toms in the mix because it's like, well, we'll bring them up in the end. Well, no, don't lose sight. Keep them within the song. It's a bit like painting a picture and taking the trees out. <laughs> you know when. Well, they, you should you should know they're there if you're if you're doing the, the, the fence in front of them you know and it took me to sort of uh give it a kick up the arse to say look this is this is putting them back to where I, at least i intended you know <laughs> rather than uh, that's a very personal thing though and and you know, probably yeah. people listening going, oh, it's a drummer's thing. They want to hear themselves. But to be honest, I don't uh, think so, though, yeah, because, it, it, you know, there's yeah. a value there to the drums. Yeah. And with Big Country, the drums are so integral to the sound. And I, and honestly, it wasn't a, a fact of us listening and, and just concentrating on the drums. I mean, it was how the drums affected the songs as a whole. Yeah. And, and having you them up like the that. It's a mix. If I was to say, I, I, if I get a chance, I'll send you one, Tom. If I send you a, a mix, what they thought was a finished thing. Oh, I'd love to hear you, it. You would write me back and say, oh my God, I can't hear your drums. It, you know, Broken Promised Land with all those marching drums at the front, you don't hear them. Oh, that would, that would be a travesty. You don't hear them. You, oh, it's incredible. like, a, it sounded like I was in a room and you'd walked out the room and shut the door. And that was my drum sound. You're in a room with the door shut. I wanted to open that door and let the drums breathe. I needed to open yeah. that door again. So obviously getting those back in the mix is more than just raising the volume. I mean, is it a matter of EQing them in a certain way? And it's Completely. It's, it's, it's actually putting the fader up and putting them back in the mix. I mean, some of the hi-hats were actually in the mix. They oh. were like, oh wow. instead of them being normal at 50%, they were down at 5 and only when you had a breather of a moment, you would say, oh, there's some hi-hats playing. And, I, you know, again, a lot of my drumming is I'm a hi-hat player. My details in my, in my playing is in my detail. That's what gives it movement for me. Uh, it's, you know, I don't mean to say it's about me, but I'm just talking about what I bring as a drummer to big country. Is, is, and it's, you know, it, it's my own band with Bruce. Exactly. And I felt I had more of a license to do that. Um, like you would get with Neil Pert with Rush, like you would get, you know, with with anyone that's uh, a renowned drummer, you would you would hear their sound. Even with Simon Phillips on Buffalo Skinners, he's way up in the mix, you know, and rightly so. John Bonham with Led Zeppelin, you're hearing way up there. He's got, you know, it's one of those things that you've got to understand that about big country when you're mixing. Um, it's, it's 
it's the character of those drums and guitars uh, obviously with the vocals as well but it's it's a drum and guitar band you know to me that's yeah. what gives it its personality and uh, it wasn't really happening on on the, on the rough mixes i must say mm. but i was happy with the result i must admit and it was a little bit of a compromise as well because bruce did did he did speak some sense with uh, getting the balance in as well. We we did we did work really well together, I must say. And we're going to mix the um, hopefully mix the Steel Town album. I hope that's still going to happen. Bruce, sa- Bruce says no. <laughs> uh, I think he says no because there's no finances involved. <laughs> that's exactly but it. I, I would like to uh, have some say in in some of the mixes, whether whether I get sent them or whether I need to be in the room. I hope you guys um, can do that. I really do. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's important that me and Bruce still stay. Uh, vocal in that area because um, you know it's still the chemistry there between the guitar and the drums that Bruce and me have that make it uniquely big country yeah yeah I think so so uh, speaking about the the drum sound and that aspect of it I have a one two three punch for you and I think Mm. I know the answer to some of these already but I'm interested in just hearing what is your album wise uh, which album has the best drum sound to you which has the best drum performance and is the one where you're dissatisfied, drum-wise? Um, King of Emotion, I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like the drum part. I don't like the ploddiness of it. Uh, I not particularly like my drums. Okay. I like Tall Ships Go. I mean, I'm, I'm being obvious there because it's a busy drum track. Uh, I like the, the, the tom sound in the, on, that, on the album. I like the sound of the crossing, although in hindsight, I think the snare... The snare is a little bit muddy. Um, I think Peace Now Time is far more of a modern, contemporary sounding, what you would hear more so now in the drum sound. Uh, although it sounds a bit Americanized, it, it varies so much, you know. I, I think I'm very proud of the first three albums um, because, you know, we had that big ambient sound that, that was uniquely to the 80s of that time that I was big, I was parcel of putting on the map along with Phil Collins and, and a few others, Chester Thompson and... Um, uh, the, the, the drummers that had the big snare sound you know I was part of that brigade so I'm very proud of that and I, st- I still think it has a value in, in, in production uh, but I like mm. you know there's a drum sound I like in some of our obscure stuff so I think when we went into Rockfield Studios I had a fabulous drum sound on some of those you know like No Place Like Home and Wild Long Face in fact we did uh, Don't Fear the Reaper as a beat as, as a, an extra track I'm not sure what that was released on and I love my drum sound on that. I love my drum sound on Don't Fear the Reaper. Yeah, I had it's quite an ambient, but more of a controlled drum sound, but it's very tuneful. It's a, it's a complete hybrid between being Steve Lillywhite's sound and, and um, Peace Now Time. It's right in the middle somewhere. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and I, I, there's also a great live drum sound I like on, on the Brighton Rock. I think it's live 
Yeah. Really good drum sound of that period. Live particularly, I mean, it, it represents what I was about at that time. I mean, again, you know, each each of those, anything you play with me on is a snapshot of where I was at the time. Right. And I'm at the mercy of the producer and, and, and the room I'm in. I'm very much more so than the rest of the band members. You know, when they were picking studios to go and do demos or to record, I would go, oh, my God, the drums don't sound good in there. You know, I'm going to sound like <laughs> a demo. Oh, no, don't go there. And it's like, well, the price is right and the guitars sound great. And why not? In the park good it's because the drums don't sound good in there don't go in there it really does affect me I, I'm <laughs> an acoustic instrument and I'm at the mercy of the room and the microphones and the producer which is why I have to kind of use my influence to keep maintain some kind of continuity you know because mm. I, I want to hear the other guys don't um, and it's important that I'm, I'm kind of overview that what about your, your if you can remember these um what about your sound on what we would call as fans the REL tapes? I mean, that we, I think a lot of those songs that you guys did right before you did the Peace in Our Time album, many of which were rejected, um, really a lot of those are viewed as, as just classic big country songs. And I'm thinking of, if this jogs your memory, I'm thinking of songs like Christmas Island, uh, if you remember that. Um, Over the Border. Over the Border, yeah, is another one. I mean, you have some incredible parts on those songs. and. See that that was like the think tank. If I look at some of the B sides that we did, the the ones that really should have been on albums or developed into our album tracks, you know, some of those basic ideas. I mean, often when songs were being developed, it, it would be a collaboration. It always involved myself and Bruce, but we would have me and Bruce would have a unique thing of when Stuart's doing his lyrics if there's another studio another studio in the same complex me and Bruce would go and commandeer that and we would go and right, put some of our ideas down and then Stuart and Tony would come in and play on them and, and you know we'd have these instrumentals these b-sides all these really weird stuff that was very experimental but showing great potential of what could be you know um, and we had immense fun doing those um I think Giant was one that I, I, I got going in the room um, where I just I just was overlaying some uh, marching drums. Um, I had a really good drum sound and it was inspiring me to have this sort of marching, you know, boom, boom, zum, dum, rum, dum, zadadadam, that kind of thing. What a part that is. Yeah, and then with this massive kind of Phil Collins, big drum feel coming in, which I love Phil's playing anyways, influenced me on my drum sound. Mm. You know, coming to that big, big drum feel into the soaring guitar riff, you know, it was a really basic idea, but yeah, brilliantly produced. But that possibly could have turned into a song. It could have turned into an album track. But it was one of those little ideas that we made a, a little idea huge. So a lot of those, a lot of those productions were small ideas brought 
in a big way, you know, it, where they were yeah. a small idea finished, keeping it very basic. And that did and become uh, all fall together. Well, they would develop, you see. All those ideas were always around, and, and often people can hear the, the the way thing. you know, you hear a song go, isn't that a bit part of that song? And it's now called Another Name. You know, yes, we, often, yes. we often did keep those things in, in, in the memory where we would say, well, we need another section for this song. Ah, it will fit if we join it against that, what we did then. And of course, it will now change. And we used to bolt things together, you know. Um, uh, is you know again going full circle, which is why Simon, you know, instinctively said it's not the traditional way people would write songs when he had to learn stuff because, you know, it, it's really like the bumblebee. It, it, it's a ridiculous design, big country. It should never fly, but it does. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it soars, some would say. It soars, yeah. It's it's a it's a it's a it's a strange thing, you know. We never thought too hard or long about if it was right or wrong, if it felt good and the parts interlocked together, even if it wasn't, you know, instinctively commercial, which is probably why the record company didn't really embrace us as much as they should. We're a very experimental band and still are, you know. Ah, that's great. Well, Mark, we just have a couple more for you. We're gonna, we're not going to keep you here all day, even though we kind of already have. <laughs> so, we're, we're so appreciative of the time that you've given us. I can't tell you how much it means yeah. to us, and it's just been wonderful talking with you. Um, but there is something I wanted to ask you I was curious about, and that is the fact that you and Tony worked together for so long. I'm wondering what it was like to transition from Tony to Derek in Big Country and how that's worked out for you. Well, for me, I found it easy. Um, I don't know how Bruce does or anyone else, but Bruce has worked with Derek. I mean, Derek's a really easy bass player to work with because he's a great bass player. And I think that's what helps. And, you know, he's had a sympathetic history with us because there was the Simple Minds, the Alarm, U2 and Big Country. We were kind of the same, within the same genre. We were we were like, we were from that family of that time. And the fact that I've been able, you know, I do a lot of session work and I have done as we talked about that. And I, I found it very easy and exciting to work with other musicians because it, it, it would be fresh and new when it, with somebody that else you don't know. So I always found it easy to lock into somebody new, um, particularly Derek, because he is a great bass player. I think he's different to Tony. Uh, you know, obviously, coming into the band, he has to kind of doff his cap towards being like Tony. But he is a, he is a different different bass player, and he has a different, slightly different sound. Um, and I love Derek's playing. I, I also miss Tony, obviously, for uh, from a personal level on certain things. But to be honest with you, Derek's, Derek's had big shoes to fill. And he feels it magnificently, you know, um, and he does bring a lot of his own style to music, which is what Big Country has always been about. It's always been about the sum of the parts. You know, it's it's the the whole cogs and wheels that make the thing move. And if it's a different cog that goes on, it, it will move in a slightly different way. But it will always be Big Country because it's it's such a unique band where everyone else, everyone contributes. You know, Derek contributes hugely in the band and on on the journey album he's he's massive on it you know with his bass lines and his little sections he does and his vocals so he does a magnificent job in the same spirit that tony always did so he transitioned really easy for me uh, within the band um uh but that doesn't take anything away from tony who i still adore and, and i admire his playing immensely you know definitely mm. oh, fantastic was fine do you have anything else you want to ask before we wrap it up yeah, I, I kind of have the rapper question in, okay. in my mind, and uh, I, th I thought it would be a good 
way to end it to talk a bit about uh, the coming reissues. So obviously Steeltown comes uh, in April, but that will also be followed by reissues of The Seer, Peace in Our Time, No Place Like Home. So there's a lot of big country activity on, on that front. So I just want to ask you, how involved have you been in those? Well, not not hugely, to be honest. Um, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a different dynamic on the business side of things at the moment. I mean, Universal are really they're they're leading the way to to putting back catalogue out, you know. And as like a lot of bands do, I mean, I did it with From the Jam when I was with them. You know, they, they, instead of just touring random songs, if you can base it around an anniversary of an album, um, it gives you a good a, a good platform to give give the tour or what you're doing a new theme. And and after doing the Crossing anniversary, which we really enjoyed, um, you know, that was very successful. Mm. Um, celebrating those seminal albums is, is, is not only great for a fan, but it's great for us to play, you know, because it, it makes us dip into that album again and pull out songs we haven't played before. Yeah. So when we did The Crossing, you know, we, we did say as a band it would be great, you know, in a few years' time when it's time to do Steel Town to do the same thing because we got a lot out of it. We immensely enjoyed playing. I mean, I really enjoyed playing the, the track The Crossing that never hardly got played. You know, we did The Crossing uh, Celebration. Uh, and likewise, we'll be doing Tall Ships Go, it hardly got played, and, and a few other great songs off Steel Town that I'm really looking forward to digging in. So I'm completely embracing, uh, you know, what the record label want to do. Um, it gives us a, a, a great platform to spring from. It keeps the bands, uh, you know, sounding fresh for the fact we're digging into songs we haven't looked at for a long time. Uh, and it gives the audience something to really look look forward to, to celebrate that as well. Because at this point in our lives, you know, we've got such a rich history. I'm enjoying the fact that we can actually celebrate those moments. You know, not every band can, has been around that long to, to, be, to play back catalogue. So right. whilst we've got that up our sleeves, uh, I'm embracing it. And, I, I, and uh, you know, I, I want to do that alongside of playing and writing new songs as well you know but ultimately people will want to hear a band of our age they won't want to hear the hits and they want to hear those classic albums and i think it's a great thing to do so i'm happy for that to be what we're doing you know and and when it comes to do the seer we'll do the same you know it's a wonderful thing to have that facility you know yeah fantastic mm. Mm. well mark, mark thank you so much i can't thank you enough for the time and oh, you're you know, welcome you know, we we talked about big country should have been bigger and this type of thing, but you know the word big is so subjective, and then you it guys is. you guys have so many people who you've whose lives you've affected in such a positive way. I mean, just as a coincidence, as an example, I mean, Svein and I both met our spouses through a mutual interest in big country, and we now have a family. You know that right. that in a way we can we can attribute in part to you guys because well it's it's always amazing to hear that I mean you told yeah. me that Tom, and and I and I'm always blown away by those stories because the richness that we have you know it, it, we never ended up being the Beatles or you two in in in, in, in the financial stakes but the richness richness that we have elsewhere in the body of work that we have um, yes. and what the legacy Stuart's left us with and the fact that even though it's you know it's still me and Bruce. Um, you know, we we are still leading the charge. We're keeping big country out there and alive. You know, and the richness there and the motivation it gives me is it's a huge part of my life. And to hear what you just said then is magnificent, and it, it makes me feel everything's worthwhile when great things come from four guys getting in a room, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> exactly playing together. You know, it's it's extraordinary that 
I, I'm very blessed to, to think that even happened to me, you know. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, again, the humbleness is still there, yeah. uh, like it always has been. And, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm honoured that, that the music or anything that I've done has touched anyone. And, you know, I, I'm still a guy that's... Big Country was always a band that wanted to... No matter what we achieved, we still wanted to be great. And that's what kept us being great because we never rested on our laurels. We always wanted to say, you know, we can do better now and work off that. And, you know, we never, ever gave up really musically other than I felt, like I said earlier, it was the business side of things that yeah. was, was really browbeating Stuart more than anyone else. Yeah. But musically, we were, we were very happy what we've done. And, you know, we're very proud, very proud of what we've done, particularly when it touches people in such a personal way, like you've just mentioned. Those little things that those little things mean a lot to the band, and especially to me. Well, that's great. Yeah, I, I try to get Tony on the show a couple of times, and um, he's very, very polite and kind. And but he just politely just declined and said, you know, I I love what we did, but I kind of want to keep that in the past for now. And I've I've told him, you know, I just totally understand, and that makes total sense. But just so you know, what you did in the past is still very much in our present. So well, we, you know, we Bruce, still derive so much inspiration from exactly. it. Exactly. Now, Bruce says an amazing thing on stage. Not only at the end of the gigs now is Bruce thanking the band members, and but he's thanking Stuart and Tony. Oh, that's great. Because, you know, uh, for different circumstances, they're not on stage with us. But, you know, we thank them equally for the show that's just happened because without them, we wouldn't be have played those songs yep. in every yep. way, and, you know. So it's a great thing that Bruce says that. And I understand why he says it. Fantastic. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll stop being so melodramatic, but I just wanted to make sure I shared that with you. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate you telling me. I, it's, it's great to hear. Well, again, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate it. And, you know, that, I think people are going to love this. And um, it's it's great that we have been able to, to get you into the uh, the social media format a little bit. <laughs> So we, we, well, sh- we sure appreciate to, it. I have to uh, be dragged screaming to do this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, you did it my own way, and and I, I, these things seem to be, get done. And, and now and again, I I think, oh, I'd love to do that, but nobody actually knows I want to do it. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. And in fact, I remember talking to you about uh, about this when you were in Leesburg, and you said, well, what is, what is a podcast exactly? So you've come I a long way. That. You've come a long way. Shame on me. So at least I'm involved. <laughs> That's I'm right. Have to do more. So lovely to talk to you all. That's it for us. Thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> And that does it for episode 33, part two of our discussion with Mark Brzecki. And wow, some great stuff there in both of those episodes. From a fan's perspective, I know Svan and I really just enjoyed sitting back and listening. And I got to say, I think that was probably the best Mark Brzecki interview ever in the history of mankind. And that's not because of anything Svan and I did. As you, as you heard, we pretty much just asked a, asked a question or two and sat back and listened. So... Clearly, Marcus had a lot on his mind over the years that he's wanted to talk about, and we were glad to give him a forum to do that and some really great information there. We we really appreciate it. And we really appreciate Nirja for putting this whole thing together for us. She contacted us and helped us put this together, and we can't say thank you enough for that. And, of course, we can't say thank you enough to Mark for, for not only taking the time to do the interview, but for taking so much time and for being so open and forthcoming with his answers and giving us so much interesting insight into big country that a lot of us uh, probably didn't 
know before, or at least hadn't really filled in a lot of the specifics before. So we really, really can't thank Mark enough for taking the time to do that. Absolutely fantastic that the band is getting so involved in the social media side of things. So we will be back with episode 34, hopefully sooner rather than later. We already have a topic in mind. It will, it will most likely be Svein and I returning to our roots a little bit, where we just sit around and discuss a topic, as only two big country geese can do. So unless some new and exciting interview falls into our lap between now and then, you can expect us to return to form a little bit the next time that we get together. Something that we're actually kind of looking forward to, because we haven't done it in quite some time. So again, if you want to contact us, please do so. BigCountryPodcast at gmail.com. We absolutely love hearing from you. If you really enjoy these shows or if you have any criticisms, complaints, suggestions about future shows, things you want to see, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We always love to hear from you guys. And it, it makes things, uh, it, it makes all the effort that goes into the show worthwhile to hear that you really enjoyed it. And we hear that a lot from people and it's absolutely great. So thank you. And please keep it coming. From a personal standpoint, if you have any interest in listening to some of my original music, please go to Facebook and search for Thomas Kerchival Music. T-H-O-M-A-S-K-E-R-C-H-E-V-A-L music. I'm working on a CD right now, nearing completion. If you like Big Country, you might be interested in this. And uh, even if you're not, if you just like the page, I would really appreciate it. If you get anything out of this show and want to give back even just a little something, please consider liking my page. It will make me happy. What what does that mean for Svine? How does that benefit Svine, you might ask? Well, he has told me on many occasions that my happiness is his happiness. So... If you like my music page, that will also make Svein very happy. So I appreciate it in advance. And actually, maybe we'll have something that Svein can plug here in the near future, too. Anyway, I hate self-promotion, but I've got to do it. So there you go. Take it or leave it. Thank you. Um, Okay, so we will be back next time. And thank you also to John Guvea for everything he does behind the scenes to keep this show running. We couldn't do this show without him. You heard his voice pop in occasionally on these last two episodes, and uh, in case you were wondering who that was, yes, that was John Guvea. So thank you, John, for everything you do. We will be back soon, and on behalf of Swine, this is Tom saying farewell. Until next time. Don't worry, when we mix it, we'll get them back to the way they were. That's right.
Oh, don't go down. Let's yeah, do an entire uh, podcast on eggplant. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, I, I've got. Look, I could tell you good stories about that. The next one. Okay. Okay. Good. We won't spoil it now. <laughs> yeah. But that, that's like that's been my curse because it's like, is that how Mark sounds? <laughs> <laughs> no, we were drunk, <laughs> and they hijacked what was going to be a little side project of mine. Uh, <laughs> Bruce and and Stuart came in absolutely smashed and completely bulldozed over an idea I had. And <laughs> it was such a fast that it's actually quite funny. Um, yeah. Uh, I think most fans would just laugh at that. Yeah, it's, and and it's interesting. What it is. I mean, I didn't, I, it, it, it's a great moment that happened and we went with that, but uh, I could tell you more about it when we next speak. Okay, good. We will but not forget a, that one. Yeah, most, most people are, can't not believe it's big country, but you know, we've all got, we've all got little things like that. Fun things. Gonna think it that shows Walter another Turbot. side of the band. Yeah, sounds like a Walter Turbot production. Yes. <laughs> All it right. Looks, it looks like John is heading out to arrest someone. No, no, no. Just, just some sound effects I have handy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> When I have no explanation, but I give them salutation, and in my admiration, I will have a fluation, like I'm making technician.